Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is part two of our series where we're exploring the details surrounding the tragic murder of 14-year-old Jody Jones and the potential wrongful conviction of also then 14-year-old Luke Mitchell. Last week, we just very briefly took a peek into Jody's victimology and background, and we also did some background on Luke. As far as Jody's victimology, nothing jumps out as obvious extreme risk factors but there are some risk factors that we did identify. She was smoking marijuana, which is illegal in Scotland. Anytime you're dealing with an illegal substance, by default, you have to make contact with, quote, criminals to get it. The growing and selling are done in secret, which creates an environment that does involve some risk. And Jody was in a romantic relationship, which, sad but true, does constitute risk. We have no evidence that there was any kind of conflict going on between her and Luke, but it has to be included in the risk factors. And on an immediate risk level, Jody was walking in a secluded area alone on the day that she was killed. And unfortunately, that is a risk factor that opens the door for any type of opportunistic predators. So knowing her risk factors, in today's episode, we're going to move on to breaking down the timeline of the day. From the moment Jody left the safety of her home, to the discovery of her body. So, let's get started. Just like in many of the wrongful conviction cases that we've covered in the past, the times and details originally stated to police on the day of Jody's murder shifted and moved by the time the trial happened. Basically, things like family members saying Jody didn't leave the house until 5.30, then a witness says they saw someone that might have been Jody and Luke near the Ronesdyke path at 4.55, and suddenly, the new narrative becomes Jody left the house at 4.50, allowing for that sighting to be accurate. That said, the beginning of this timeline can be a bit confusing because of changing stories. Actually, the entire timeline is confusing because of changing stories. So it just so happened, on this day, Jody's phone was broken, so she wasn't able to use it the day that she was killed. Our story begins at 4.34 p.m. And right off the bat, we have the type of police conspiracy that we've grown accustomed to rears its ugly head, at least allegedly. Between 4.34 p.m. and 4.38 p.m., there were a series of text messages exchanged between Luke and Jody's mother's phone. According to Luke, these texts were between him and Jody on her mother's phone, making arrangements for Jody to come to New Battle to see him later. He says that he told her he'd be going out after tea, 
which is not a, really a thing here in the U.S., but from what I understand in Scotland, after tea just means after dinner. So according to Luke, there's a conversation about Jody coming to New Battle to see him. He says he'll be available after dinner. Tea in his house is usually around 5.30. According to his mother, oftentimes Luke would be the one to prepare the dinner. His mom would get home from work around 5.15 and they would eat or have tea, as they say. But here's the problem. We don't know what those text messages actually said because they were deleted from Luke's phone. But seemingly, not by Luke. An expert witness testified at trial that the text messages were deleted from the phone sometime after 12.30 a.m. on the night of the murder. Problem is, at that time, Luke didn't have his phone. The police had possession of his phone. So already, we're five minutes into this timeline, and Marty getting upset. We have this huge black hole at a critical time, and we should have the exact conversation about what the plan was at our fingertips, and we just don't. And I'm sure you're asking yourself the same question I was asking myself at this point, and in fact, did ask the folks from the UK that have been studying and reporting on this case for years. Big shout out to Matt and Donna for all of your help with this episode with the research. But that question that I was asking myself, and you're probably asking yourself is, well, if the text messages were deleted off of Luke's phone, what about Judith's phone? She should have those texts. But apparently, they were deleted off her phone as well. I was told, quote, no one knows who deleted Judith's texts, end quote. So all we know is that there was a series of texts, three actually, and according to Luke, that exchange ended with a plan for Jody to head to New Battle after tea. She said, I'll be down later. And truthfully, as a matter of actual real evidence, all we really know is that Luke was exchanging texts with Jody's mother's phone. He says that he was talking to Jody on the other end, but they're text messages. So, in all reality, it could have been anyone on the other end of that conversation. And Jody's family statements over the years are all over the place, which is part of what makes it really difficult to pin down an actual timeline for this critical hour. In some statements, Jody's mom, Judith, says Jody definitely was using her phone that day. In others, she says she doesn't know if Jody was using her phone. So, from a factual timeline basis, we know that between 4.34 p.m. and 4.38 p.m., three texts went back and forth between Luke's phone and Jody's mother's phone. The initial text came from Judah's phone at 4.34, then Luke responded, then Judah's phone sent the last text in the exchange at 4.38. And as I said, according to Luke, the basics of that conversation were Jody asking if he wanted to hang out, Luke saying he could after tea, which would be at 5.30, and Jody confirming she would head to New Battle later. Now, I told you last week that Jody had just been ungrounded on June 30th, the day she was killed. Unfortunately, that story changes over and over again, too. In Judah's initial statement, she doesn't mention a grounding. She says that she had accepted the fact that Jody and Luke were having sex, and she wasn't surprised when Jody admitted it. Then, a little over a week later, on July 8th, Judah said that she had found out that Jody had skipped school one day. And then, on August 1st, in another interview, Judith told investigators that the day Jody skipped school, she had texted her telling her to, quote, get her backside home. She says at that time she had barred Jody from going to her cousin's flat. And this was because about the time Jody skipped school is when Judith also discovered that she was smoking marijuana and having sex. Now, as far as when the grounding ended, if there was a grounding, 
That's also a smorgasbord of different versions of a story. I don't even know how to organize this, so I'm going to start at the trial and work backward. At Luke's trial, Judith testified that she told Jody that she didn't have to wait until 6 p.m. to go out. She was okay to leave whenever she wanted to. She added that Jody then grabbed her phone and sent Luke a text. She then sat with her in the living room playing games on her phone until Luke texted back, and then she left. That was the trial version. But that's not at all how things were described during the initial phases of the investigation. In another statement on July 9th, about a week and a half after the murder, Judah said that Jody came home at 4.05 p.m. She put her school bag down and went into the kitchen to get something to eat. Jody then went upstairs. A little bit later, Jody came back down into the living room and sat down on the couch beside Judith and Jody's brother, Joseph. Judith says Jody was talking, and she shushed her and told her to go on out. And then, this is a strange bit, she says she then played a Rod Stewart song, which Judith explained was like some kind of code, I guess, to let Jody know that she was no longer grounded. Also in this statement, Judith said that she did not know if Jody had used her phone to text Luke. Remember at trial, she said she absolutely did. And now, let's move on to Jody's older sister Janine's account of the grounding. Janine makes a statement saying that Jody's grounding began on May 14th when she skipped school. She says it was supposed to be a four-week grounding and it ended on June 12th, over two weeks before the murder. Then we have Jody's grandmother. She said that the grounding had ended, quote, a few weeks before the murder. And in yet another statement, Judah said that Jody's curfew had been extended to 10 p.m., to give her more time to get home from Woodburn, where Judith said that Jody had been spending time in the recent weeks before the murder, which again is weird if she was grounded. And evidently, just two days before the murder, on June 28th, it's confirmed that Jody was at Luke's house because her mom called a taxi to pick her up from there and bring her home. You confused yet? Me too, and I think a lot of people are. This all seems like stuff that we should know about, and yet there are so many conflicting statements by the same people that it makes your head spin. Add to that the fact that Judith gave police a dozen statements between the day of the murder, June 30th, and a month later, on July 31st. And in those 12 statements, she repeatedly says that she doesn't know or remember if Jody used her phone that day. But by trial, she has a detailed recollection of Jody texting Luke and playing on her phone. So with all that being said, I'll just give you the statement of the one person that has been consistent about this. Luke says Jody texted him at 4.34. He responded, saying he was good to hang out after tea. And at 4.38, Jody texted him back, saying she would be, quote, down later. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Less than an hour after the last text exchange, Phone records show that Luke then tried calling Jody's landline. Remember, Jody's phone was broken, and she had texts from her mom's phone. So at 5.32 p.m., Luke calls the landline, but nobody answers. He says that he was calling to let Jody know that he was done with dinner, that he was going to go sit on the wall at the end of his street in New Battle to wait for her. But again, no one answered. Side note, and we'll get into this in another episode, there are witnesses that saw Luke sitting on the wall. Then, eight minutes later, at 5.40, Luke called the landline again. Now, it's important to point out that the police investigation determined that Jody was killed at around 5.15 p.m. We'll get into that later, but just keep in mind that according to the prosecution's case, Jody has been dead for 25 minutes by the time Luke makes this call. So at 5.40, he calls the house and Jody's stepfather, Alan, answers the phone. Luke was calling to see if Jody had left yet. And he says Alan told him that she had, quote, just left. So, according to Luke, Jody's stepfather believed that she had just left at 5.40 p.m., which lines up with that 5.30 time. And again, during the initial investigations, all the statements indicate that Jody left her house around 5.30, or, as Alan said, had just left at 5.40. By trial, those stories all change, and the jury heard that Jody actually left at 4.50 p.m., a full 50 minutes before this call from Luke, which raises all sorts of questions. One being that in the trial version of all this, Jody left at 4.50 and was to meet Luke at the East House's end of the Dyke Path, which is just a three-minute walk from Jody's house. Many believe that had Jody left to meet there at 4.50, and nearly an hour later her family receives a call from Luke, who she was supposed to meet 45 to 50 minutes prior, this probably should have raised some alarm bells with Jody's family. But it didn't, and according to Luke, none of that was true. Again, he had been told that Jody had just left at 5.40. And it should be noted here, again, that shift in the time that Jody left back to 4.50 turned out to be really fortuitous to the prosecution because of maybe not super reliable witness statements that were later used to put Luke and Jody together before 5 p.m. A story for another day. Digging a little deeper into the time Jody left the house, let's look at the different versions of Alan, her stepfather's statements. So Alan's arrival home was confirmed with surveillance footage from a garage she stopped at on his way home. It's generally accepted that Alan arrived home at 4.38 p.m., which would have been right about the same time the last text was sent from Judith's phone to Luke. And if you're keeping track, that's just 12 minutes before the trial time of Jody's departure, 4.50. In Alan's first police interview, he said that he never saw Jody that day. He said that he was, quote, aware of three people in the living room when he came home, 
which he figured were Judith, Jody's brother Joseph, and Jody. But he says that he actually only saw Judith. In another statement, he said that when he got home from work, he headed to the bathroom to take a shower. While he was in the bathroom, he heard the front door close. He assumed that was when Jody left, which would line up with the 450 timing. In that statement, he also said that he saw Janine, Jody's sister, in the living room after he got out of the shower. Which, as you're going to hear later, seems a little odd because it seems like Janine was actually at her grandmother's house. It's also a little strange because Janine wasn't part of anyone else's story as far as I know. No mention of her being at the house that afternoon at all. But later, Alan then corrects himself. In a subsequent statement, he said that he was mistaken about it being Janine that he saw. That it was, in fact, Jody that he saw in the living room after his shower. And he's pretty direct here. He says in the later statement that it was definitely Jody that he saw. Which, of course, begs the question, if Alan got home at 4.38, walked in the house, took a shower, and then when he got out of the shower, Jody was in the living room, how did Jody leave the house at 4.50? The time that she would have had to have left by in order for the prosecution's witnesses to be valid. And, of course, we have to wonder, why would Alan tell Luke at 5.40 that Jody had just left? And if Jody had left at 4.50 to make a three-minute walk to meet Luke, and Luke is calling looking for her 50 minutes later, why wasn't that concerning to anyone if that's what actually happened? So I'm only a couple weeks into this case, and I already have lots of questions. So, so far, the timeline is this. There was a text exchange that ended at 4.38 p.m. That's when Alan got home from work. Jody left the house sometime between 4.50 and 5.30, depending on who you ask and when you ask them. And at 5.32 p.m., Luke called Jody's house, but no one answered. And then again at 5.40, Luke calls and Alan answers, and according to Luke, told him that Jody had just left. According to Luke, the plan was for Jody to walk from East Houses to New Battle and meet him at his house. He says the attempted call at 5.32 was to tell Jody that she didn't need to come all the way to his house, that he would wait on the wall at the end of his street. Now, there are some other witness statements to add into the mix. They're controversial, and they all have stories in and of themselves. For the purposes of today's episode, I'm just going to drop them into the timeline, and we'll dig deeper into them in another episode. So, sometime between 4.49 p.m. and 4.54 p.m., Adrian Bryson told police that she saw a young couple that resembled Jody and Luke at the East House's entrance to the Rones Dyke Path. Remember, the path connects New Battle, where Luke lived, and East House's, where Jody lived. According to Luke, Jody was supposed to meet him in New Battle, but if this witness did see them, then that would mean that 11 to 17 minutes after that 438 text, Luke had already traveled the path to East House's and was there on the other side to meet Jody. Now that's about a one-mile walking trip, so roughly a 20-minute walk from Luke's house to the place where the witness said they saw a young couple. This is the witness that I mentioned in the introduction to the case that was unable to identify Luke at trial. He was right there in front of her. She was asked if the person she saw was in the courtroom. She said, This sighting also occurred about 40 minutes before Luke called Jody's landline, which we talked about a few minutes ago. So let's look at it like this. If Luke is guilty, and if Adrian did see Luke and Jody together, it would mean that after the text from Jody at 438, Luke booked it down the path and made it to East Houses in under 17 minutes, 
Then the clock starts ticking. There's only about 40 minutes before Luke is calling the house looking for Jody. So if that was some kind of ruse, in that 40 minutes, they would have to walk back down the path towards New Battle, climb over the stone wall. There's an attack, sexual assault, then murder. All of that has to happen in under 40 minutes for Luke to then collect himself and make the call looking for Jody. Moving on in the timeline, at 7 p.m., Luke called his mother. He says he made this call to tell Corrine that Jody hadn't shown up, so he was going to go hang out with some other friends at the New Battle Abbey. He asked his mom to send Jody there if she happened to show up at their house. Remember, she didn't have her cell phone, so he's just leaving a message with her. And also, just for the record, there are witnesses that were hanging out with Luke at the Abbey. So that part seems to be confirmed. But according to the state, Luke's already killed Jody by this point. So according to Luke, Jody never turned up. And if you're of the belief that Luke is innocent, then for the next several hours, everything appears to be normal for him. He's hanging out with his friends, and Jody never ended up coming by. But at 10.38 p.m., this stopped being a normal day. At 10.38 p.m., Jody's mom texted Luke. She was upset, and she said to send Jody home. It was past her curfew. Two minutes later, Luke called Judith and told her that he hadn't seen Jody. She never came by. Right after that, Judith called her mother's house, Jody's grandma, to see if Jody had maybe went over there. Grandma, whose name is Alice, hadn't seen her either. Then 17 minutes go by, and Judith calls Alice again, her mother. It stated that during this call, Alice instructed Judith to call the police. Then here's a time that we know happened. At 11.06 p.m., Judith called the police to report Jody missing. But here's a weird little detail. At 10.45 p.m., 21 minutes earlier, someone else called the police about Jody, claiming to be Judith. But during the time when that call came in, the phone records show that Judith was on the phone with her mother. That's a mystery for another day. And it's not the only one. There's a whole web of conflicting statements and times from Jody's family. Between Judith, Alice, and two of Jody's cousins, and her brother Joseph, they've all given statements that Judith had informed them about Jody being missing before 10.30 p.m. So the two cousins say that Judith called them asking about Jody and told them she was missing while they were watching the 10 o'clock news. But the news ends at 10.30. Eight minutes before Judith texts Luke telling him to send Jody home. There's more oddities that we'll discuss later, but something's definitely off here. It really shouldn't be this difficult to piece together a timeline, or at least some semblance of a timeline. It's one thing for people to have their times off, and for one person's recollection to contradict someone else's, but this case is very strange. And it's difficult to track because everyone keeps making statements that contradict their own prior statements. It's like trying to create a timeline with six Jay Wilds giving you the details. Not that I'm suggesting anything nefarious is going on with Jody's family. That's not my point and that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's hard to make sense of it all because everything keeps changing. So despite all the inconsistencies and times, we do know for sure that at 11.06 p.m., Judith called the police. At this point, Luke is already out looking for Jody, by the way. 
He started making his way along the Ronesdyke path towards East Houses as soon as he got off the phone with Judith and realized that Jody had started towards his house, but never made it. Now, Jody's grandmother's house is in Mayfield, an adjacent village, just a short walk away. Jody's sister Janine and Janine's boyfriend Stephen are all at Grandma's house. There's, of course, more confusion about this next part. So Grandma Alice, Janine, and Stephen set off together from Alice's house in Mayfield to go look for Jody. The three of them meet Luke at the entrance of the path. It's stated that this is around 11.10 p.m., but I'm struggling to see how that's possible. From everything I've read, they were on foot. The phone records show that Judith was on the phone to her mother, Alice, at 11.03 p.m. That was the call where Alice told Judith to call the police. It looks like on the map, at least a 25-minute walk from Alice's house to the entrance of the path where they meet up with Luke, which would seem like they couldn't have made it there before 11.30. I don't even know yet if this will be relevant, but suffice it to say, it doesn't add up. If Alice was still at her house at 11.03, I don't see any way that they could leave on foot and then be at the entrance to Ronesdyke Path at 11.10. And actually, even how the search party met up with Luke isn't clear. There are statements from Jody's grandma that they made arrangements to meet Luke halfway down the path when Janine called him while the trio were on their way to Roan's Dyke. In another version, arrangements were made to meet Luke because he talked to Jody's mom, who was home with the police filling out the report, and she then relayed that information to Janine. Janine, of course, did have a cell phone with her. But the fact is that the phone records show that Luke never had any contact with anyone from the search party that night, other than that call after Jody's mom texted him. He was just out searching the path with his dog and seems to have run into the family on the East House's end of the path. And it's also unclear why, with no documented direction from Luke, the search party went to the path at all. Alice was asked this very question at trial. Why did you guys go to the entrance of the path? And her response was, quote, we just did. Janine was asked at trial if they hadn't run into Luke at the entrance of the path, if they would have followed it to New Battle, and she responded, quote, we were only going to the path, end quote. So again, let's circle back to what we do know. Sometime after 11, Luke and his dog Mia reached the East House's end of the Ronesdyke path, where they meet up with Jody's grandmother Alice, her sister Janine, Janine's boyfriend, Stephen. Luke had been training his dog, Mia, to be a tracking dog. So when he met up with Jody's family, he asked if they had anything with Jody's scent on it so he could put Mia onto it and have him search for her. But no one did. But Luke went ahead anyway and put Mia into tracking mode. Without any scent to work with, he just commanded her to find Jody. He said, Jody's hiding. Find Jody. Go find Jody. And at that point, the four of them head back down the path towards New Battle. Then, suddenly, Mia started alerting to a notch in the stone wall. Luke handed off her lead, and he jumped over the wall with his flashlight. He looked around for a few minutes and called out to the group that he had found something. At that point, Stephen then followed Luke over the wall, and he saw it too. It was Jody, nude and stabbed to death. At 11.35 p.m., Luke called 999, and told the police that they had found something and to get there as soon as possible. Then at 11.38 p.m., the police called Luke back and asked for an exact location. At this point, the police made some false assumptions. 
that ended up playing a big role in why Luke became a suspect. They thought that Luke was alone searching when he found Jody, which wasn't true. He was with her family. They also thought that he was on a bike, which he wasn't. And they thought that Jody had left Luke's house with him earlier, none of which were true. Luke was taken in for questioning that night right from the scene. That is where our story ends for this week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.